Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today outside the Lodor Falls Hotel in Borrowdale on a very cold and a sleety morning with author, illustrator and our guide for today, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. It's great to be out, regardless of the weather. It was so fantastic yesterday, wasn't it? There was snow on the top and it was blissfully blue, but not today. We both had a little foray down to Great Langdale and, well, it was idyllic, but... We are quite resilient, and um, if we protect the microphone with an umbrella, we'll survive. Today, Mark, we've come to Derwent Water and to Borrowdale to talk about landscapes and specifically how they change through time. I come to the landscape with a love of history, and I've specifically invited Roy Henderson, who's the Valley Ranger for the National Trust and who's been here for 36 years, who has a a real appreciation of those many layers. And then I thought towards the end of the walk, we would look at that sort of 300-year history of change. And I've invited Dr. Christopher Donaldson from the University of Lancaster to meet us by Crow Park and we'll just walk to Friars Crag and talk to some of the literary figures of the picturesque and how radically their landscape was changed in that short time. So we're kind of zooming out in time scale, talking about the here and now and the recent management of this landscape, and then to look at it in the context of the wider history and particularly the picturesque. What's our route, Mark? Well, our basic plan would be to walk all the way around the lake, but it's winter and it's not really clement enough for us to actually physically do all of the walk. But we will look from the door here right round to Keswick and to Friars Crag. We do that in one go anyway. And that gives us the western side of the lake. It gives us Brandle Howe Woods, of course, which is very significant. First acquired land by the National Trust. So it goes right back to the roots of the National Trust. Let's go. I've just, uh, we've just hopped off the Borrowdale bus and it's pretty inclement here. We've come across the Chinese bridge and onto the beginnings of the Bald Walk, right at the head of Derwent Water. I'm in the company of Roy Henderson and his lovely Labrador, Daisy. Roy, how long have you worked for the National Trust? Good morning. I've worked for the National Trust now for uh, 36 years. Uh, I left to go when I was 16. I was very lucky at that point to get a job with the Trust. But I'd worked prior to that as a volunteer with the Trust since I was 13. Gosh. So I've been in the Valley quite a long time now. You're a dedicated man, and the National Trust has been so much a part of your life. And this valley in particular? Yeah, oh, I love Borrowdale, but every area ranger loves their own, own patch. There's something about the job, isn't yeah. it? You, you are a local lad, I believe. Yeah, I went to school locally. Uh, initially, Cleetermere on the west coast. And then went to school in Cockermouth, and then uh, that's where I started my Duke of Edinburgh Award schemes, working for the Trust. Nurturing the next generation. As rangers, we're going into the local schools and uh, working predominantly with sort of uh, four to 11 year olds uh, and giving them, well, hopefully the love of the lakes that I have. Uh, and it is nurturing those early stages. 
So forever for everybody was the National Trust sort of tagline when it started. And I yeah. believe in that very strongly. We are here forever and for everybody. Even on a pretty mediocre day like today, it's still it's a couple of people just walk past us this moment. So it doesn't stop people coming. No, the, uh, the seasons are changing. They're getting longer and longer. So we used to have defined seasons. So people come for the summer or Christmas period. And now people come in all year round, which is fantastic, really. The Air Rangers job is really diverse. Uh, it's like everything and anything. So right the way from footpaths, bridges, styles, uh, although we have a field ranger team as well. Uh, so it's the reason why I'm here is because the job's still really interesting. There's, it's so diverse. There's lots of things to do from educational to uh, actual practical work on the ground. Without what you're doing, really, this area would be under threat. Oh, very much so. So we rely very heavily on our membership and, our, and donations. And last year we got a donation for this side of the lake, for the footpath, mm -hmm. of £10,000 from an individual. And he's left us the money in memory of his wife because she loved this side of the lake. We've been able to match fund that with the National Park and they're match funding it so we'll be able to resurface all the paths on this side of the lake. So we're in Myrtle Bay at the moment and bog myrtle is a plant that grows well, quite widely in this area. Uh, some of the work we've done in the past has... Excuse me, that's just my dog. Daisy. <laughs> Good girl. Well done, Daisy. Uh, just saying hello to some people. Bog myrtle grows widely in this area. It's been allowed to grow as it is because we've put work in the past. So we've put a recycled plastic boardwalk into this area. We've got a hard path through this area. So it's win-win. It's win-win for the uh, walkers and the visitors that come to this area, but also for conservation as well. Uh, looking towards the heart of Borrowdale to uh, the jaws of Borrowdale and the central fells beyond. Castle Rock always looks like a, a fang or a tooth, so that fits the idea of uh, the jaws in a sense, and, and the king's how there, and the knitting halls on the, on the right-hand side. Very dramatic, and trees are a very dominant feature. Even from here, you see, over to our west, just nearby across the meadow, uh, you've got a blanket of trees and birches and so on, and uh, secreted in there is a caravan site that absolutely nobody would know was there. And we're at the head of the lake, and uh, it's just a calm place to be. Dead damp here, but uh, the boardwalk, can you describe what's the surface? It's unusual, it's not timber as I would have expected. Yeah, we put this in 12 years ago, the first section. It's recycled plastic. Uh, so it's predominantly milk carton grade plastic recycled uh, in Liverpool and gathered from the northwest of England. Right. So I looked at lots of different types of plastic. And I was quite keen that we uh, didn't get it from the other side of the world. It just didn't seem yeah. to fit. It's quite expensive uh, compared to timber, but it lasts a lot longer. So in the long term, it pays for itself. And I like the milk carton link because you've got uh, cattle grazing this area. What breed? I think these are Galloways, but um, most of the farms in the lakes have got cattle on the hill are using sort of hairy cows of one sort oh, or the other because right, yeah. they can stand outside in the winter for, well, for the majority of the winter, if not all of it. They're quite hardy. They graze very differently to sheep, so they punch holes in the ground so the seed bank can be released. Yeah, we've got early spotted and spotted orchids in this area and they've come about after we started grazing the cattle in this area as well. Again, it's releasing that seed bank. Mm. There's a lot of latent stuff there. Yeah. Because you can't see it immediately, doesn't mean it isn't there, and it's just waiting to be given the chance. Yeah, the landscape that we're looking at now, although it looks very natural, a lot of it's man-made, so we had the, uh, the clearance for the mines, for making charcoal and smelting things. We had then the introduction with farming and the sheep being brought in and the cattle being brought in, obviously. 
so it's an evolving and changing landscape. We do uh, look to the future, so we have 12 months plans, we have 50 year plans and 100 years plans, but we've also got to adapt to uh, the changing world. Economics and political changes that you can't predict in the short term, but actually you know they will impact on the long term. Yeah, very much so. I mean, none of us know what's going to happen with Brexit, uh, but we're trying to prepare for it as best we can. It will affect our farmers and our farming communities, and it's trying to get things in place so we can help support them as well. Yeah, you've got a landscape that has taken pressures over hundreds of years. I mean, when the mining was here, so the Elizabethan period, Keswick was twice the size it is now, population-wise, yes. uh, it would have been a very industrial, industrial landscape. landscape. Yeah, and, and I remember seeing some early prints... Uh, when the sort of picturesque phase was taken off and there's, there's smoke rising from all sorts of places. So massive amount of charcoal was made in the area. Mm. A lot of deforestation happened at that time. Mm. And if you look at our archaeological maps, there's lots of uh, charcoal pit stents mm. everywhere throughout the whole valley in areas that we've got no trees at the moment. And we come round uh, Roy, round a little headland, and past a cottage, and there's, uh, we're coming over a, a stream. What looks like a spoil bank a little bit further on. Is this something to do with that? Yeah, again, this is one of the remnants of the mining, mining history. Uh, this level itself, it's the lowest level, it's the drainage level for the mine, called the salt ah, level. Yes. And many moons ago, myself and my brother decided we'd go and investigate a lot of the old mines and just actually go inside them, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the most stupidest things we've done. We went into this level, uh, and before I went in, the guy that lived in the cottage came across and said, I wouldn't go in there, lads. And we said, mm-hmm. we'll be all right. At one point, we were swimming with our helmets off, and our heads to one side, so we just fitted into the, uh, into the space. Came to a collapse, came back out again. Same guy came across and said, my septic tank empties into there, lads. <laughs> 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 At which point, we went straight into the lake and had a wash. <laughs> yes, uh, that's... Um... Part of life's rich tapestry, I'd yeah. call that one. I definitely wouldn't recommend anybody going and investigating the mines. They've all closed about the same time, and they're all slowly falling apart. apart. And what was the ore that was won here? So Galena lead, silver, zinc. Right, and this extends right up Catbell's slope, up onto Skelgill Bank. Uh, and so there's a series of levels, are there? Yeah, so if you uh, plot them on a map, they can follow the vein. Mm-hmm. So there's a diagonal track up the hillside. And they've worked out where the vein was, and then they, they uh, went into it, Penetrated. and then up and down from there. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, the bedrock is what volcanic or yeah, uh, skidder slates in this skidder area. Skidder slates, but yeah. it's a real mixture between the Borrowdale volcanics yeah. coming down and the skidder slates coming it's in. It's a this. real mix. It's fantastic to find something like this and uh, to <laughs> to be part of the heritage yourself, a survivor. And the great spoil bank there, that will have come out of the bank as well. Yeah, it's just spoil that's taken out of the mine. And there's gorse that's colonised it. Does that cope with any of the lead? Yeah, it's coping quite well. We've got some areas where we haven't got any vegetation, and that's Bam. partially because uh, the screes are still moving, and also the contamination as well, so the right. lead. Right. Well, we've come round to Abbott's Bay, Roy, and on the high tide mark here, there's what looks like grass trimmings. What is it? It's uh, it's crassula, a New Zealand pigging weed. It's been brought in. It's an invasive species. Uh, we have it on Dirt Wars. We're desperately trying to stop it spread to other lakes. Where uh, did it come from? Is there any uh, clue? We don't know exactly. 
Uh, so it could be uh, fishermen, it could be people introducing it deliberately, it could be somebody releasing a pet yeah. or something or whatever into the lake. We, we don't know where it initially came from, no. but we're trying desperately to try and uh, control it within the lake mm-hmm. and then stop it spreading to other lakes. It impacts on the water quality. Yeah, we've had uh, quite a bad outbreak of blue-green algae this uh, last autumn. And it's still it's still here now with us, and it's normally gone by this time of the year. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot of combination of different things. So the crash layer and breaking down and rotting and putting nutrients into the lake. Some farmers are putting over fertilizer in the fields. Right. Now some of our tenant farmers have worked out if you get soil sampled, then you only put enough fertilizer on. You don't over fertilize. It actually saves you money, and you get the same results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it helps to protect the environment as well. Uh, and you have other influences like the mines, uh, and they put out pollution as well in a way. Yeah, so the Elizabethan mines, and uh, they're polluting the lakes as well. So we're trying to control that pollution, trying to treat that pollution. Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, was a very industrial landscape at one point, and it's the aftermath of that really that we're sort of trying to regret, address now. It's a long tail to it, as it were. We're witnessing it in the tree growth, we're witnessing it in pollutants, and we've got visitors, and goodness me... <laughs> There's dogs chasing around now. There's two swans coping with a dog. Now, that's an example of tourism can be a real issue. Here, the owner's calling the dog. Not successfully as yet, but the swans are holding their own. Happily paddling away from the dog, aren't they? Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And I think the dog will come back eventually. And it is a tiny percent of the visitors that we get to have that sort of problem with. Isn't that intriguing? But it only takes a tiny percent. Well, it's an amazing little spot, the Abbot's Bay. But uh, I think that Labrador, I think it's off to New Zealand. It's it's gone. I've never seen a dog swim as far. Come around the headland of that spoil bank. And uh, there's a sort of an open space between the spoil. Uh, what was tucked away in that space? Looks like it should have had something in it, but there's nothing there now. Yeah, I've seen a pencil drawing of a big water wheel in this area. Ah. Uh, so they'd have brought water in from the sides of cat bells. There's uh, two header tanks or header dams further up, which fed the water wheel, and that brought power to the mine. They, the power they were using to actually drain lower levels of the mine, but also for children to uh, have big stamping mills and have the children crushing the rocks up with their hands. Of course, you had all sorts of people coming to do the mining, come to think of it. You had the German miners who came here and they weren't really welcome, were they? No, there was problems in Keswick when they were here. So they moved themselves out to uh, Derwent Island, as it is now, Mm. uh, and had a little settlement on Derwent Island. but they were brought in by Elizabeth I because they had specialist knowledge of uh, mining and how to extract more ore out of the... Uh, and pumps methods. and things of that nature, perhaps. Indeed. It's the drainage of the mines is significant. Yeah. Of course, they, they got deeper and deeper. Yeah. <laughs> the rain is changing a little bit more to snow, but very gently changing, Roy. Now, we're going on past the jetty. Where are we heading towards at the moment? We're walking down the western shores of Don't Water, heading mm-hmm. back towards Keswick. Right, yep. It's something of an everyday life of a ranger to cope with events, and this is a a classic example where a a Labrador has just gone out into the lake and frequently they just swim back. But this one, it seems, he's just kept swimming. So you've had to respond to the situation, Roy. What have you done? Yeah, so I've found some friends that live on Don't Island, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're coming down with two different boats. Uh, so they'll sweep one side of the lake and they'll come and pick us up and we'll sweep the other side of the lake. Mm. Uh, it just it's so cold for the dogs being in the water this time mm. of year. Um, and the Labrador seemed to be uh, heading very determinedly towards the other, other side of the lake, didn't it? Well, how far would you say that? A quarter of a mile? Oh, yeah, easily. 
on a cold day. Uh, Just one second. Is this the dog? Yeah, the dog just rolled up, would you believe? Great, I'll, uh, I'll just film the folks with the boats and tell oh, the dog to come down. Quite innocently, come in from behind us, onto the lead. <laughs> There's the motto there. So things, events can have happy outcomes, which is, and so soon, I'm so pleased about that. We're coming through the uh, upper end of Brandlehow Woods, which has a little promontory, and uh, it's a pretty significant spot, Brandlehow. First of all, mention that we've come by two open hands made of oak. The symbolism of that, Roy? Yeah, so to celebrate the National Trust buying or acquiring, rather, Brandlehow Woods 100 years ago, and the guy had the commission to build the hands. Initially, had two large acorns, wooden acorns, that would go into them. Mm -hmm. But then once they were in place, we put them in, it just didn't look right. No. So we left them out so people can climb in them, sit in them, play in them, and uh, have the photograph taken in them. Dynamic action spot. And um, Brandlehow Woods. Now, this is the first significant acquisition in, in the Lake District. Oh, very much by so. By subscription. Yeah. Uh, somebody's raised through public appeal. People sent money in. Some people sent money knowing they'd never ever see this area, mm -hmm. but they wanted to protect it and love it and look after it. Mm. Uh, lots of things were happening at that time. Thurmere had been uh, flooded for water for Manchester prior to that. It's the threat of a railway going down Borrowdale to service the mines and the quarries. This part of the lake was going to be developed for uh, some very nice houses, mm -hmm. uh, which again would then exclude public access. Certainly the path would be just along, would have been a railway. William Wordsworth was really vocal at the time against all such things and were influences, and, and we're in a landscape of influencing people who railed against things becoming private and excluding people. Yeah, we like to think it was the birthplace of the conservation movement, uh, but I'm sure lots of other areas claim that as well. Uh, but they're, they're wrong, it's here. <laughs> it is here, actually. Uh, and, yeah, the foundations of the National Trust were born within the Lake District, and lots of things were happening at that time. Lots of social reforms were happening. Uh, Octavia Hill, one of our founders, was uh, really into social reform, changing things, getting people out of the cities, getting them to love this environment and, and showing them what we have. And that is what the Trust is still all about. Well, we'll talk later because I'm going to speak to Chris Donaldson about the emergence of the picturesque and, and the romantic age and how this all kicked off here in the Lake District and the whole notion of opening up the area in a distinctly different way, from being a hostile, savage landscape to being something really precious to everyone. It's just seeing the, these open hands, you get that embrace. In your time here, Roy, 36 years, lots of things have changed and there's been high points and low points. Um, what have you been the really high points, would you say? Uh, so the accessible work we do for uh, for wheelchair users, mm -hmm. uh, something I'm really passionate about, and the path we've walked along, we're working towards getting that upgraded to an accessible path. And low points? Uh, we had a fell fire a few years ago now, and we lost maybe a square kilometre of hillside. That's in Newlands, was that? That's right. Oh, and yes. uh, walking through that afterwards, I was devastated because mm. it's just like it was almost burned down to the mineral soil at some points. Mm. But the way that's regenerated is brilliant. So that's marvellous. The lakes are really resilient. How has the ethos changed here over that period of time, would you say? Oh, it's massive. I mean, when I first started working for the Trust, it was myself and another ranger, and it was access, it was gate styles, bridges, and maintenance. Uh, we've gone right across to do lots on uh, education mm -hmm. uh, and trying to make things as accessible for as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, one of the most recent things we've done is the 50 things to do before 11 three quarters, which I think is fantastic. It's getting kids out there, climbing trees, playing in the woods, children being children, really. Mm. Uh, the hydro plants that we're putting in are working really well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, the trust are very aware of uh, climate change mm. and trying to use more renewables. We've got mountains, we've got water, so let's use it. Yep, you've got steep felt behind us, the cabbells, and that thrusts water down to the lake, and yeah, that's power to your arm. Well, Daisy's added her comments all the time, so any listeners have been wondering what the moaning sound is, it's not a disapproving audience, it's somebody who's a bit bored with us chattering away. The rain is turning ever more towards snow, so I think we'll plough on a bit further. I've just bumped into a couple of guys wandering back along the lake. Where are you heading, lads? Well, we're just going to go back into Keswick now and wander around the gear shops and look at all the things that we don't need and are not going to buy anymore. Um, uh, but we're just up here for the week and uh, enjoying ourselves. We'd like to have been up the fells, but the weather's a bit unpleasant. Iffy. But yesterday it was fantastic. A bit icy, but we had a great day. And you're, you're used to having the right gear. Oh, absolutely. Crampons. I always have crampons on ice axe. And uh, I have a... Map and compass, but I also use a GPS now as well. Um, and the day before yesterday, we actually used our crampons. And, uh, well, you've, you've adapted. And where do you come from? We come from Somerset, in the, oh. the southwest of England. Right, you've got your coats on. Coats come up from Somerset. Yeah, I don't know about that, you. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> don't start him with his accents. <laughs> Brilliant to see you. Well, go and enjoy your cup of tea when you get there. Yes, we yeah. certainly shall, yes. yeah. Maybe a pint of fine ale somewhere oh, as well. Rose yeah. <laughs> water gold. Anyway, okay. thank you very thank much. You. Well, we've just come through Portinscale and heading back to Keswick and there's a, a, a novel new innovation on Country Stride. We thought we'd uh, have a quick fire questions to, and these are going to be snappy and if you're up for it, uh, Roy, it'd be great to hear your reaction. What's your favourite pub? Uh, Bank Tavern uh, in Keswick. Okay, what's the best view in the Lake District? Absolute best. Oh, Friars Crag. No trouble. What's your favourite walk? On oh, the Western Shores of Dirtwater. Ah, where have we been today? What's your favourite uh, Cumbrian meal? What would you? Oh, Cumberland sausage. Cumberland sausage. Spicy you... sausage. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's your earliest lakes memory? Oh. Coming to the lakes from school, being brought out from school. Mm. Understandably, it has an impact at that age of your life. What's the perfect lakes day? Oh. Walk on the hills on a good day. Finish with a pub. Herdwick or red squirrel. Red squirrel. Wordsworth or Wainwright? Wordsworth. What's your favourite lake? Dernwater. Is there another one? Uh, Buttermere, but don't tell the ranger over there. <laughs> no, right. Right, OK, uh, I think we'll stop there. Well, we walked through Keswick. The rain has rather abated, which is a great blessing. Coming towards uh, Crow Park, and I've met up with having just had a, a bite to eat in the cafe at Theatre by the Lake. I met up with Dr. Christopher Donaldson from the University of Lancaster. Chris, it's great to see you. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me along. It's a pleasure. Yes. And what drew you to be something of an expert on Cumbria? Well, I suppose my wife's from Cumbria. Um, this is the reason I ended up here. Um, I think ending up here, it's not hard to take an interest in the things you see around you. Yes, now you come from Pennsylvania. Is there a landscape akin that from your roots? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are similarities um, in terms of 
upland landscape as well as large lakes um, mm. and rivers. Uh, distinctive differences. I think one thing that you can say about the lakes is its size makes it slightly more comprehensible. Mm. Landscapes in the States might have similar features, but they often exhibit them at a much larger scale. Mm. And so being here in the center of Cumbria, within the National Park, you have within a very small radius um, an extensive variety of landscape around you. And in the States, things often seem a little bit more spread out. Mm. So if, if we just go into the Crow Park, we'll yeah. have a little moment and have a look in there. Chris, we've uh, entered Crow Park, which is quite a nice little rounded knoll. And uh, we've got the cloud capping all the major peaks. We're looking at an evolved landscape. Crow Park was relatively bald hillock <laughs> here on the northeast side of Derwentwater. Tortoise-shaped hill. Uh, it is an evolved landscape. It's, uh, it's a site that has been marked and shaped by different kinds of human interventions and industry. There's a rich history about that, which extends back into at least the 16th century, when a lot of the growth that would have been around here at Crow Park was cleared away by a company of miners, uh, mm -hmm. German miners, to so the Company of Mines Royal, who set up here and had possession of a lot of the property around the lakeshore, including some of the islands, would have cleared this area out during the 1580s, um, but following that period of regenerative growth, the establishment of some of those oak groves that distinguish the landscape, certainly by the end of the 17th century, we have commentators who very specifically remark the lovely oaks that grow along the shore of Derwentwater. Mm. Uh, Appropriate, because Derwent, of course, means the, yeah. the oak-fringed yeah. <clears throat> lake. Precisely that. Written into the name, written into the landscape, one of those nice moments where toponymy and topography work together. I suppose the really interesting side of the story then occurs in relation to the Earls of Derwentwater at the beginning of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. The third Earl of Derwentwater, famously James Radcliffe, sides the House of Stuart during the Jacobite Uprising of 1715. Was that a good move? It didn't serve him well in the longer term. Um, we can I maybe leave kind of the House of Stuart and the House of Hanover and our partisan <laughs> allegiances to one side. But in the immediate sense of history, I guess Radcliffe did lose uh, his life. He was tried <laughs> for treason and executed in 1716. He, his lands were eventually forfeited uh, to the crown yes. uh, following the death of his own son. Mm -hmm. uh, the property then is actually given over to the benefit of Greenwich Hospital. Uh, the trustees of the hospital were given access to this property and allowed to effectively generate income and revenue through the property. Eventually that plays out in uh, the form of them selling a lot of the timber around Crow Park to a joiner based down in Greenwich. And in the late 1740s, around 1748, 1749, there's a process of clearance of a lot of this oak grove that distinguished this side of the lake, in which you can see in prints of the period, William Beller's famous view of Derwentwater looking towards Borrowdale, which I think is printed first in 1752, does show a, a landscape full of groves and foliage. Mm -hmm. uh, I think famously is contrasted with a view that's produced by Thomas Smith in 1762, a, a much starker, more atmospheric and moody view, which shows a relatively denuded landscape, such as the one we have here, with a few straggling tree stumps and a bit of a blasted, uh, almost more of a husk uh, than a trunk of an oak tree. Mm -hmm. So the stark change in the landscapes. And I think what those prints and pictures are capturing are changing impressions of 
how people see this landscape, how they feel about this landscape. That's translated into the literature of the period where you have people beginning to weigh in, uh, voicing their own opinion about how this planned deforestation has affected the view. And in some cases, according to individuals like John Dalton, who publishes that weird descriptive poem about touring the mines in Whitehaven, how that has violated uh, the sanctity of these oak groves. However you feel about it, one way or the other, though, it's a testament to the way in which this is a cultural landscape, one that has been produced by different kinds of intervention as well as natural processes over a long period of time. And interesting how it picks up on significant moments, not only in the region's history, but in the nation's history. Looking south, and, and you look into the jaws of Borrowdale, and yeah. suddenly that wild, hostile, fearsome landscape transforms in people's emotions and and there were people like William Gilpin uh, who were playing their part and others and this whole notion of picturesque where you hold a frame (laughs) as if a real picture up to the view you look through the frame and it draws the scene together and that was sort of like the very first landscape expression of what picturesque was. Uh, William Gilpin who was up at Scaleby Castle recognised his ruinous castle (laughs) in a moat which is about four miles east of Carlisle just north of Haver's Wall he spotted it having been on the Grand Tour I presume was it a a European going to look at classical monuments that people picked up on? Well I guess a fusion I mean there's that culture of the Grand Tour as part of the I guess the genteel aristocratic gentleman's educational perfection you you know attend to the cultural patrimony of Europe by touring scenes of classical antiquity Mm -hmm. but also landscapes of interest it's the great age of curious tourism tourism not necessarily for the sake of of spiritual benefit or not necessarily for any kind of practical utilitarian purpose but tourism in search of curiosities whether they happen to be natural curiosities or as you say antiquities signs of ancient grandeur that distinguish that old route that people would follow from Calais uh, and if you were you know I guess well healed enough and lucky enough all the way down to Rome so inheriting that culture and expressing it here domestically, that's a part of how the picturesque crystallizes. But it certainly it's that combination between the uh, natural, organic, uncontrollable, wild forces that one can detect in the landscape and ordering design and containment. Peter Crosthwaite did a map, <laughs> a cartographer, able to actually identify these new things, which were called viewing stations. Who came upon that term? It emerges in Thomas West's Guide to the Lakes, which was first published in 1778. And interestingly, West was an antiquary. He, in his guidebook of 1778, instituted the idea of stations or viewing points that one could follow around the lake, in in a certain extent, literalizing some of the spirit of the picturesque we were just talking about a moment ago. And West was a Jesuit priest. There's that connection with the Via Crucis, the idea of stations of the cross, moving through the landscape station by station. There might be some kind of a there, but in either case, those stations that were described in West's guidebook, which passed through a number of editions, about 11 editions, uh, West's uh, viewing stations were then inscribed by Peter Crosthwaite, who ran a museum locally, into his tourist maps, which he began to produce around 1783 and which were successively reproduced to the very beginning of the 19th century. So, uh, literalizing in a map those stations that West is describing in right. his book. Fascinating. We'll have a little stroll a bit further because we've got a bit of a feel for it now. Well, we're wandering on beyond the Crow Park and um, beyond the Theatre by the Lake and 
there's a bit of a transition from tarmac and we're coming onto a nice footpath, Roy. Uh, you, you've got an interesting paling fence to the right. How did that come about, Roy? Yeah, so we deliberately used Riven Oak timber. So it's, uh, it follows on from being a very formal sort of uh, walk out of Keswick on the tarmac. Mm -hmm. to transition into uh, a more rural area and then going wild as you go further back, further down Borrowdale. Now, the weather has cheered up a, uh, as we looked west beyond sort of Bassenthwaite direction, just beyond uh, yeah. Skidder. And the day is a little bit more cheerful. And we come by a, a wall with uh, ivy growing on it and a large plaque to Canon Hardwick Rawnsley. This sequentially is probably out of kilter a bit, Chris, with where we were when we first were talking up in Crow Park, but there's quite a lot of uh, context of where he fits into the big story. Uh, and, and of course, rather like Ruskin, this man was instrumental in caring for a cultural landscape. Yeah, so uh, we were mentioning a sort of individuals like Thomas Gray coming to tour and view the region in 1769. If we you know, wind the clock ahead, then a century, we're right in Ronsley's era. Um, and as you were saying, in a way, he's born, interestingly, in 1851, so the year after Wordsworth dies. But alongside a number of other influential readers and interpreters of Wordsworth, he is someone who does carry that flame forward into the next generation, a way of thinking about the landscape, appreciating the landscape and viewing it, which is commensurate with his appreciation for uh, discipleship to John Ruskin, uh, who will, I think, be moving physically and then thematically onwards to in just a few minutes' time. Picking up from Wordsworth and Ruskin and other powerful thinkers of the era, mm -hmm. both preceding him and then as his contemporaries, Ronsley's immensely influential in a aesthetic appreciation of the region, but also a spiritual appreciation of the region. You can't forget that his title is as canon. Mm. Uh, his role was as a religious leader. His interest in the Lake District wasn't merely picturesque, mm. uh, but it was informed by a strong sense of his faith and his belief. Um, there's a great characterization of this period of exploration in the region, certainly the development of more ambitious kinds of mountaineering, which is informed by a kind of muscular Christian ethos. Mm -hmm. And much of Ronsley's writing and much of Ronsley's thinking contributes to that, as much as it contributes to, through Ruskin, through Wordsworth and others, a fine appreciation of the ecological balance. Ronsley comes of age as an influential individual in an era of, I guess, tremendous environmental dispute about the management of resources locally and access locally. That includes, obviously, the damming of Thoromir in the 1870s and 1880s, and he's a very vocal uh, participant in that debate, but equally debate about the extension of railways into the region. Well, Chris and uh, Roy, we've made it to Friars Crag, where I think a, a thousand a, a day might come. Uh, it's a majestic spot. Friars Crag, of course, comes from the fact that uh, the valley, the lake itself, was split between two abbot monasteries. Uh, uh, the Coniston one was on the far shore, and uh, Fountains, the Yorkshire one, was on this shore. Uh, and you've got Brayton Grange in Borrowdale further up. And we've got this majestic view focused exactly upon cat bells and uh, you've got Waller Crag up to the left 
and right through to the jaws of Borrowdale with Grange Fell. And on a clearer day than this, you will probably see up towards Great End, but it's not clear today. And you can see across to Causey Pike to the right in the Newlands Valley. So it's a dramatic spot and people adore it with the uh, Scots pines here, which are weather torn, the wind hits them. Uh, but this is a viewing station, Chris, and it's linked with various things from West and Grey and perhaps Ruskin is probably a figure we haven't touched on, really. Well, it's interesting being here at Friars Crag, I suppose. We're not very far from the Ruskin Memorial, which is just up the path from where we're standing now. And uh, it's associated with Ruskin because he recalls having been brought here in 1824 on the occasion of what appears to be his first visit to Keswick with his parents, uh, being taken by his nurse, actually, to Friars Crag, which he later recalled as the first memory of an event in life for him. So it was a striking moment, though he was only five at the time. Ruskin carried the ideas forward about how important landscapes were. The picturesque fits into the storyline of uh, European wars. The vogue for the picturesque distinguishes British culture in a number of ways during the later 18th century. Later 18th century, of course, also coinciding with the French Revolution and a, long, a series of conflicts that stretch all the way to Waterloo in 1815. And in that period of relative hiatus and access to the continent, 1789 to 1815, albeit with a brief interlude, uh, access to the European Grand Tour is largely cut off. And that, if anything, helps to feed interest in domestic tourism and boost the number of visitors who are traveling to this part of the world, as well as up into the north of Britain, into Scotland, or into Yorkshire, into the Dales, the Peak District. The interest in the Lake District and similar landscapes benefit from an increase of domestic tourism, which, to a certain degree, is a consequence of a lack of access to the continent in that period. You go around Keswick today and there's shops are plenty selling gear and all sorts of things. Going back in time, there was always some kind of knick-knack you could acquire that gave you a connection with this landscape and you could take away with you. As you say, the development of uh, tourist paraphernalia is something that individuals like Peter Crosthwaite, who we mentioned earlier, oh, yes, were engaging in as early as the 1780s, both in terms of published materials, printed maps, guidebooks, other kinds of ephemera, as an important way of developing a souvenir relationship or a memory relationship mm -hmm. with a place. And we, we might think of them as trivial, and in some cases they may be trivial, but those little knickknacks, I guess, function kind of as supports for memory or aid memoirs. Not all of us are maybe necessarily blessed with a memory as powerful as John Ruskin's, but for him, the view from Fires Crag was just that, a kind of souvenir, uh, a spot of time, if you will, to use the words worthy and idiom, something that he could take with him in a way in his mind. Uh, the material presence of the knick-knack um, may fulfill other functions, but one function that it does fulfill is as a support for memory and attachment to a place. Ruskin carried it on through his life, this moment when he was here. But many people came to these viewing stations. They were here for 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever. Then they went away. How did they hold on to that moment? What's interesting about coming to a site such as this one... Um, of course, there's some viewing stations, like the viewing station at Clayf on Windermere, which are architectural and actually have a really built presence in the environment. But even these viewing stations, which are demarcated by the Trust's work around this promontory, they're places where people have congregated, 
for now hundreds of years. And it's share, a, social, share, it's a social place. Yeah, in share, sense. Share, it's a social place. So people come together as, as we've been standing here speaking, either couples coming, individuals coming to sit, to reflect, and to look. I suppose one can come in solitary meditation or in companion with others, but one is always, I suppose, whether solitary or in the company of others, occupying a view place that has been occupied by people um, successively for years mm-hmm. upon years and sharing in that community of experience. But I think what's interesting about the viewing stations as they are described in West's guidebook or imprinted in Crossweight's maps, I guess they're providing a kind of instruction where to look. It's Perhaps, a manual. It's, yeah. a, it's an instruction manual. It, yeah. It's a scholarly moment where you are... <laughs> imposing into your mind something that otherwise wouldn't be there. Where to look and then, to a certain degree, how to feel, um, which is, I suppose, that prescriptive element of the picturesque that people often lampoon, and perhaps fairly enough. I think it's that sense that, in a way, whether it feels trivial to look at the landscape in a hyper-aestheticized way or whether someone has, perhaps like Ruskin, a deeper, more spiritual connection with a particular spot, uh, people are participating in a kind of community of spectatorship which joins people in a single generation, but also transgenerationally uh, through time. It's rather like people go to watch a sporting event and they're collectively in, uh, up in the grandstand all watching this one great event and they have yeah. great moments that they all share uh, that <laughs> thrill. And here you share a thrill of a moment in a place. There are people who like to commune with nature and go away and find their own peace, but here you have a, a, a collective place. You come round the little bay by the Franz Crag and we have this opening up of the view just as we come round the corner and where you're looking across to Corsi Pike, uh, Cap Bells and through to the jaws of Borrowdale and you've got this wonderful sweep of it like an ocean of water that's still dancing in silver light. It's a vibrant scene. Yet for all the people who come through here, Roy, it's, it's still a place of calm. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I come down here most mornings with a cup of coffee, about half past seven, go to Enterprise Crag with Daisy and just look at the view and it's always changing and it's always beautiful. It is. And you can hear the honking of the geese here. Uh, there's life here, there's energy and it's a vibrant scene. And, and I think, Roy, you mentioned it earlier, it's an evolving masterpiece. Looking out on the view here, one is constantly reminded of that invisible community of others who have mm-hmm. looked upon the view or dreamt about the view or imagined the view. Um, actually, looking here across the water at the moment, I just mostly think of Squirrel Nutkin rolling out to Owl Island. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you very much. No, thank you. Yeah, thank you. journey's end, Mark, and we have found ourselves a little sheltered spot to reflect on the day that has been. Weather-wise, it was fairly miserable in terms of sleet and cold for a lot of it, but towards the end we had this brightening up, looking at the clouds drifting up and over the Newlands Fells. It turned out to be a lovely evening. 
It's that kind of day. The Lake District is never stationary, and we experienced it. Because there wasn't a lot of wind, we weren't troubled by the adverse weather, and uh, the woodlands gave us shelter, and I think it turned out to be a thoroughly worthwhile day. And, and we saw lots of people out walking. It was interesting having two guests coming at the valley from very different angles. So Roy coming at it from managing it now and the huge number of people who descend on Borrowdale and to the classic viewpoints of Fry's Crag and the like. But then also seeing it in that historic context that Christopher uh, Donaldson brought um, to the conversation as well. And the, the growth of the picturesque and the seeds of tourism and conservation planted there. Roy was very practical and very passionate. Uh, there are rangers in each valley and they're each equally passionate. And you can tell after 36 years, he's not lost any zest and, and pride in that valley. He's doing a fabulous job in the valley, which was encapsulated completely randomly by the drama that unfolded with the dog. <laughs> this Labrador that followed the swans out into the lake and then just disappeared from view. And then the terrified owners. But, I mean, hats off to Roy. He called up his mates, who own a couple of boats, and said, look, we need to find this dog. And I, I just thought, this is a day in the life. These things happen to him all the time. Yeah, well, clearly. People value what he's doing, and those two people were absolutely over the moon. There were tears in their eyes. I even felt a bit of emotion myself. Christopher Donaldson brought something very different to the conversation, much more from an academic point of view. But really interesting, that bit of shoreline between Theatre in the Lake and the National Trust base that we walked back to, I mean, within the space of a mile, you've got all these incredibly critical places to the growth of the conservation movement. Chris conveyed how people perceive, and that was critical, but he also gave a dateline as well, if you could follow it, because we came upon things in different orders because of the geography of things. Well, part of the reason for that complexity is because it was a complete melting pot of people who were incredibly passionate, not just about the landscape, but the protection of it. And it happened in quite a short period of time following Wordsworth's death. The thing that I thought was really interesting, particularly on Fry's Crag, where all three of you were mentioning the point that enjoying the views is a collective experience. I don't think I've perhaps thought about that. I tend to enjoy these things perhaps in a more isolated way, but those viewing stations and seeing all the people there today, they were enjoying it together. Most of me, I did notice several people standing with the view behind them, taking a picture of themselves, making sure that they were part of the view. Yes, yes, that's it. The most modern iteration of the kind of viewing station history. Now, some housekeeping. First up, if you've enjoyed this episode, there are many more. You can find them on our website, which is www.countrystride.co.uk. We are also on Facebook and Twitter, and in both cases you can find us at... Countrystride 1. Don't know, why is it 1, Mark? Did we ever work that out? Well, we sorted that out largely because I, I found that there were, somebody got Countrystride. Boo hiss to them. G <laughs> give it to us if it's yours. The final thing to say is next time yeah no mark we're getting up high next time aren't we uh, we went up workhouse mall last time the weather kept prevented us going up onto hellvel improper i'd like to try and if we can possibly do it and it will be mid-february i've got david powell thompson and any listener who's a keen walker will know all about david's energy he's going to pull us up high style 
above Buttermere. Now that should be one hell of a walk. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I, I love that kind of environment. And what a fantastic place to be. What a fabulous ridge walk that one is. Um, that's going to be our 10th birthday, who would have thought it. That's um, Country Stride 10, and that'll be coming up in a few weeks' time. Please do subscribe. Please do tell other people. And until then, see ya. And thanks for listening. <laughs>